To provide the best possible patient care in today's environment, hospitals and healthcare providers must have a strong IT infrastructure with systems to manage and support every part of patient care, which often comes at a high cost. So, how do rural hospitals with limited resources build and maintain a strong IT and health information infrastructure? With a variety of platforms, as much integration as possible, and the support of experts. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 55 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. Rachel, information technology has never been as important as it is today in healthcare. It's part of everything that we do, and without it, uh, the way we care for our patients would look very different. That's right. We're speaking with someone today who has a great deal of experience navigating the IT infrastructure of hospitals and helping them to establish the right platforms and processes to optimize their workflows and ultimately to provide the best care possible. That's right, Rachel. And today our guest is my good friend, and I say that with all sincerity, Barry Mathis, a consultant uh, in principle for PYA. Uh, welcome to Rural Health Rising, Barry. Thank you, JJ and Rachel. Appreciate the invite. I look forward to sharing what has been a 30-year passion of mine, uh, not by design. It's just where it wound up, but always enjoy an opportunity to talk about the industry. So, Barry, to start, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and that uh, that journey to developing that passion, uh, your background, and your work at PYA? Certainly. So I started out as a software developer. Uh, for any listener to this who understands what COBOL is, I've now given away my age. We'll just leave it right there. But as a <laughs> software developer for the Department of Defense, I, I was a United States Marine stationed at Quantico for most of my tour, uh, writing uh, logistics and financial software for the United States Marine Corps. Uh, when I transitioned out of the Marine Corps into the civilian sector, I, I landed very quickly within months in healthcare. Wound up the chief information officer for a 250 rural healthcare center, uh, one of the old Hillburton's hospitals back in the 50s. And uh, there I, I learned how important it was uh, for uh, information to be timely. Uh, for physicians and nurses and treating patients. Back then, we didn't have the EMR that we have now, but we had, you know, pharmacy orders. We had things printing in certain places. And in a lot of places, a printer not working is not that big a deal. But when it's the only printer in the emergency room and that's where the lab results are coming from, <laughs> it cannot go down. So I had a very good teacher. Uh, he's, he's since gone on, um, but he taught me healthcare. He said, I'm going to take this IT guy and teach him how healthcare works. I uh, could never thank him enough. His name is John Barnes. Uh, I that hospital was uh, purchased by Community Health Systems years later, and from then I went into audit of all things. I was the corporate IT audit director for Ascension Health for a number of years uh, through an outsourced in-source contract called uh, Chan Healthcare Auditors, which at the time was the largest healthcare audit company. Now purchased uh, uh, an acquisition through Crow Healthcare. Uh, after that, I got into consulting, and I've been doing consulting now for a little over 20 years, and that's where I met my good friend, and I say that also with all sincerity, Mr. J.J. Honshire. And I joined PYA, had my own firm. I was an owner in a firm for about 12 years. I joined PYA about six years ago. PYA is Pershing Yoken Associates. We go by PYA now. Uh, we have uh, uh, offices in six cities, 
And we like to say we've got, you know, kind of three buckets. We have tax audit, and then obviously our largest bucket is consulting. Uh, we About 70% of our firm's uh, consulting, about 80% healthcare overall. So we do a lot of healthcare, but we do more. So it doesn't matter if you're starting a new practice, you're looking for a tax, an auditor, consultants, if you're looking for physician's valuation, compensation, you name it. Um, our president, Marty Brown, who's a wonderful, wonderful leader, uh, he likes to say we are business advisors. That's what we do. And our, our motto is we want to help. And that's, you ask me why I do what I do. I give you that answer. The answer to why I'm doing it with who I'm doing it with, that's because of these kind of people. PY is a great firm. Um, I was in the middle of starting my own firm again and met these folks and, and just fell in love with the whole, the whole idea of what they were trying to do and the culture. It really is about the culture. So uh, I think, I tend to think that we're, we're much different than I've seen in other consulting firms, especially uh, large consulting firms. Uh, there's a lot of people that can do what we do. Uh, what separates us is how we go about doing it. I have a tremendous um, a team to work with. I have a fabulous company, and we're no short of work with everything that's going on in the industry. My passion's always been computers. As a kid, I wanted to work for Atari. Uh, <laughs> you can't see my computer, but there's a symbol on the back that lights up. Oh, no that, um, and, and I've covered that symbol with an Atari, Atari sticker. Symbol. So, <laughs> so, so I don't, I don't advertise for that large conglomerate. Uh, but, but I have a, I have an Atari sticker on there on my computer. So in any event, funny. so that's, that's, that's my history and background. I love what I do. I love the people I work for, but most of all, I, I really get a kick out of helping rural hospitals. Barry, you do a great job at that, and I just you know, want to segue into a conversation about why you do what you do. But before I ask you that question, you know, I, I do want our listeners to know that uh, when you say the word Barry Mathis uh, in places like Hillsdale, Sherrod, and other places, it means a lot to us because you have been there fighting for us. Uh, you've gone to the table with contracts for us. You've even been in the courtroom uh, for us when we've had to, as small hospitals across the United States, uh, sue big uh, companies, right? And you had to be the IT expert for us. And uh, that happens in our industry, but you've been there. You've been a, a trusted name uh, for decades and certainly have been very instrumental in Hillsdale. And I want to add, Rachel, um, he forgot one thing that I think was the most important uh, to his career. He was the chief information officer for Hillsdale Hospital. Now, he didn't say that, That's did the he? crown no, jewel. I know. He did not say that. You buried the lead on that one. Absolutely he did. So he was the CIO <laughs> that I appointed uh, when I was COO. Uh, and Barry came up here during some transitional period, and he put together a phenomenal IT program and team, including uh, the titles that we have for our staff now, uh, IT analysts and directors and et cetera, and did a phenomenal job. So, Barry, I want to thank you for your contribution to Hillsdale Hospital, but more than that, I, I want to know why you do what you do. So we ask this on every episode of Rural Health Rising, and it allows us to get to know our guests and for our listeners to get to know you just a little bit more as well. So what is your why? why what motivates you? What do you do? Why do you do what you do? And what gets you up out of bed in the morning? It's a great question. And I've answered this one for some other podcasts and, and even in client interviews, uh, my answer is always two parts. There's there's the intrapersonal in uh, why Barry does what he was what he does uh, gives me personal joy. I like technology. I like solving problems with technology, but not just for the sake of solving the problem. Right? It's all technology is not good. 
you know, and I'm, there are a few technologists that will admit that. There are times that applying a technical solution is the worst thing you could do, okay? Uh, but beyond that, there's a lot of things technology can help us with. And in healthcare specific, it is getting really interesting now with artificial intelligence and the big data uh, movements that are out there. And, and even for, you know, I'll say for once, there's probably some other times they've helped, but for once the Fed stepping in with some interoperability insistence and things, uh, that's a game changer for us mm-hmm. in the industry. So uh, mm-hmm. beyond that, I like, I like rural hospitals. I grew up in a rural hospital. I grew up in a hospital that was budget challenged. Uh, we had to bring our own coffee. Uh, we literally cut coffee out of the budget because it was just one of these things we couldn't afford at the time because Medicare was challenging us. And um, I, I, I developed an affection for what we were trying to do. And it's, it's, there's patients that uh, we had a saying, uh, and this was Bradley County at the time. It was called Bradley Memorial Hospital. It's now called Tenova there in Cleveland, Tennessee. And there was about 40,000 people that lived in that county. And I just so happens our ER visit was about forty to forty four thousand a year. Hmm. So we said uh, at some point about everybody in that county is going to come to our emergency room, right? So we want to make sure that they're you know if they were our family member, if I, if we live in there, there's a good chance they're our family members. So when I'm working with rural hospitals or clinics that support rural hospitals or even vendors that support rural hospitals, it is about the patients. Um, I had a motorcycle accident probably eight years ago, spent three months in the hospital, a month or so in, in rehab and broke my back in two places and busted my wow. knees all up. And it's, you know, there are people that, that were around during that time that will tell you it is a miracle that Barry is alive. So about everything from a, a humbling experience to being latched to a bed for months, not being able to get up, everything you can imagine about that to being stuck with needles and tests and physical therapy, uh, I developed a new appreciation for what people do. I watched nurses try to take care of me at the same time they were trying to fight with a machine next to the bed that wouldn't let them log in. Uh, I was transferred from the emergency room to the orthopedic uh, floor of a hospital and had one of the nurses ask me how much uh, pain medication I had been given in the emergency room. Hmm. And, and, and at that point I was on the pain medication. I was going <laughs> to say, like, how do you, how would you even know? <laughs> and I'm exactly, wow. I'm like, or you're feel asking confident me. That you knew. Yeah, I said, I'm question. <laughs> exactly. I'm laying here with my back broken two places. My knees are shattered. I've got broken ribs, eight broken ribs. Not and, enough. And I'm, on, I, exactly, Not enough. <laughs> I'm on a lot of pain med. So I said, well, can't you just look that up in your computer system? And she turned to me and she says, well, there's some kind of linkage between the two that, that, that we don't have yet. It doesn't work. So we don't know what the emergency room does. We just have to ask. And but so ask if the you patient? Want, oh my yeah. So if you want to know why I do what I do, it's to stop that kind of stuff from happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the information systems that we put in our hospitals, they should be breaking down, you know, these log jams and, and bottlenecks and miscommunication. They shouldn't be creating them right? right so as a as a 30-year healthcare consultant those are the kind of things that i crawl through hospitals looking for because if we can just fix that one thing in a hospital then we've impacted forty thousand people that come through that emergency room that year mm-hmm. absolutely you know barry um so we're going to talk about a lot of things today and 
We're going to talk about some acronyms. We're going to hear about uh, EHR, uh, EMR, and sometimes we can just get confused about the terminology. What's the difference between the two? So uh, uh, these systems are more than just a digital replacement for the paper medical records like we once enjoyed, right? Where you'd come into uh, medical records, pick up that hard copy, take it to your specialist, and we move forward. So can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between the two and why do we have it? Well, first of all, let's talk about the acronym itself, the electronic medical record versus the electronic health record. If you go back to the days of Malvern, Pennsylvania, and, and others with McAuto and Share Medical Systems, uh, what we had was a hospital information system. And it started out in the finance department payroll, and then finally here in 2022, you could, if you were to do a Venn diagram, you could draw whatever interaction circles you want, and then just draw one big circle around the whole diagram and call that IT. That's information technology. So it's now every part of the hospital, but but the electronic medical record itself, and this is the way I was taught, this is the way I teach other people, but I will say this, you ask six people, you'll get six different answers. So this is Barry's answer, okay? The electronic medical record is if I come into Hillsdale Hospital and I am seen in the emergency room, transferred to a patient bed, go through my radiology, eventually see the physician, get diagnosed, get my treatment plan, discharge with a good treatment plan, all of those kind of things. And then there's a bill that comes along with that. All of that is part of my electronic medical record at Hillsdale Hospital. Okay. Over the course of my 50 <clears throat> years of life, uh, <laughs> you said 30 what? Yeah, exactly. 36, 32. Uh, I've been to more than just Hillsdale Hospital. I've been to hospitals at Bradley Memorial. I've been to hospitals at Erlanger and Chattanooga. I've been, you know, with different events in my life. If you took all those and put them together, that's my electronic health record. That's, that's what's been tracking or, you know, since, since I've been, adding information to an electronic system or someone's been adding it on my behalf. So that's how I distinguish the electronic medical record versus the electronic health record. Now, when most of us think about an electronic medical record, they think about just that, that piece up front. It's the, you know, the clinical piece, right? Well, it's a lot more than clinical. So I like to talk about a hospital information systems and HIS. Okay. So with that, you've got all the other, you know, uh, ancillary systems attached to that. Now, of course, and JJ knows this, we've had this conversation as, as colleagues and professionals, there's a couple of different camps on there. What's better, a completely integrated system, meaning all of these systems, such as my admitting system, scheduling, laboratory, radiology, clinical care notes, you know, anything you can financial systems, supply chain, payroll, all of this into one single system. Right. It's one of the things that makes Epic so popular as it is. It's kind of in one system, minus the general ledger and accounting, of course. Well, that's the full HIS in most hospitals. And, and I looked this up before we had this conversation. I, I did a little of my own research. And when I say research, I went back and looked at probably 50 clients that I've served just in the last few years. And we do full IT assessments where we crawl around, look for all all kinds of things, shelfware, we call it, where you bought a system five years ago, but you never installed it or it doesn't work, so you don't use it. On average, around 150 to 350, depending on the size of the hospital, applications within the hospital. Okay, we just, we just had the great fortune of helping another rural hospital in Missouri 
Um, and, and by the way, I'll tag this on to why I do what I do and why I like rural hospitals so much and why we need them. One reason that I'm so, so passionate about Hillsdale is here, here's a rural hospital that continues to, to do well as a rural hospital. That's a rare breed these days. That says something within itself these days. Um, but we, there are all the hospitals 30 years ago, 20 years ago that could not make it on their own. So they partnered with large systems. Well, we had the privilege of helping uh, Boone Hospital, which is now Boone Health System in Columbia, Missouri, um, stand up on their own. They broke away from Barnes Jewish Health System in uh, St. Louis, and we had to build that from the ground up because for 30 years, that hospital was run out of St. Louis. And I think we averaged around 350 applications that we had to stand up and move over. Well, those 350 applications, that's the HIS. It's not just the electronic medical record. It's not just a part of the electronic health system. It is 350 applications all working together to run the business, treat the patients, meet regulatory requirements, take care of the community, communicate with people. Anything that you could imagine that touches that hospital, there's an electronic system somehow, some way connected to it. That's the HIS. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I say no more. I know. I'm like, I'm, for the first time in my life, I might You're be speechless. speechless. That is the first time. <laughs> Truly. Um, it's so interesting. I, I just think about everything you do and it sounds so fascinating. One, because I know nothing about it and therefore I'm very interested because as JJ knows, I like to try to figure out everything about everything as much as I can. Oh, yeah. But um, it really, I think you just illustrated the fact very well that it permeates every single part of providing healthcare, these systems. Um, and so to do that efficiently, healthcare providers really have to optimize their workflows. So how do you do that when you've got, you know, 350 different applications that have to work together and several of them may be involved in the same workflow for the same caregiver providing care? Um, so can you give us an understanding of how do you really, how do you look at that? How do you optimize that? And then any real world examples of how doing that impacts the clinicians and their ability to provide care. Sure. So again, if we go back down to just a basic definition, you know, without having to put the 350 applications in there, let's just look at, you know, the things that are closest to the patient, right? The admitting system, uh, scheduling, the uh, clinical notes, physician order entry, treatment plans, billing, uh, those sort of things. Uh, the electronic version of that, is supposed to, by nature, the very reason you have it, create efficiency, standardization, mm -hmm. ease of use. And, and that's always been the intent. Now, as an industry over the last 30 years, we've been really horrible at that job as an industry. Um, most physicians will tell you adding an electronic system of any kind into their workflow adds another hour and a half to three hours of their mm -hmm. day mm -hmm. where they're just clicking on oh, yeah. something or looking at something. Yep. So, mm -hmm. Absolutely. so, so if you want to build efficiency into a workflow from a clinician, you got to work that hour, hour and a half and three hours out of it. You right. got to give them that time back to, to what they're supposed to be doing, which is treating a patient. Right. Okay. Um, so to do that, I, I think we're getting there. And I think artificial intelligence is helping, and, and there's a whole podcast you can just do on AI. But let's take something simple as I don't want to have to touch and click every time. 
So a big thing for physicians now is the uh, text-to-speech, right, the voice recognition. So if I can speak, and, and there's a funny side of this when I get to the end, if I can simply turn to something and speak and say, I need to order this, or here's my observation, or here's what I want to do, and that show up in the electronic record, then that's the most optimization you can have. Now, we're not mm-hmm. there completely, but but look at something as simple. Well, it's not simple, but look, look at the acquisition of Oracle to Cerner. That shocked all of us when Oracle mm-hmm. said, we're going to buy Cerner. We're like, what? <laughs> You're going to buy? Somebody's buying Cerner? Okay, we're going to get to why? that because I have questions. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, we can talk a lot. But, but on the surface of that, what or, a lot of what Oracle's really interested in is the data, yeah, right? Not right. the information systems, no, and and the then data. their invet, their investment in um, you know voice recognition and optimization within the data. They have a a big place in the industry for the voice recognition piece for some of their other acquisitions. So so they're going to take their their tie at that or their try at that to get that done. Um, but. You know, you asked for an example. I, I didn't forget that. You asked for what's an example. So let's pull out one that I think has worked. And there's a lot that I can give you that hasn't worked. And I think every physician who's listening to me would agree that in some cases, the electronic medical record has done great for the insurance company, right? But mm-hmm. horrible for taking care of a patient in a lot of cases. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and it's a constant battle, not to say that it was set out to do that. There's no vendor, no vendor who has sat in a boardroom somewhere and said, let's make this more difficult. They're all trying to solve the problem. It's just a very difficult problem to solve. Mm-hmm. But if we can take a very small slice of that and let's look at, since we were talking about voice recognition, let's look at voice transcription. Uh, if you go back 25, 30 years ago and you were getting a X-ray done, uh, you come to the emergency room and you've got to get sent down to get a chest X-ray. Sometimes it would be hours before you could get down there for scheduling purposes but once that x-ray was taken, it could be days, not hours, days before the radiologist group or person on call or whatever could read that and then type up notes or put them in the computer. And then that somehow, you know, by then your primary care physician's already seen you and your follow-up visit and said, yep, it's a broken finger. Here's what we're going to do, right? Nowadays, with the voice recognition, the transcription, before you get back to your bed in the emergency room, the radiologist has already read that and it's available in the electronic medical record for that emergency room physician or PA or MP to talk to you about. That's how fast, that's how, that's how something in our industry that's supposed to be optimized, it was optimized and it works exactly the way we thought it would. Absolutely. You know, Barry, uh, EMR certainly require a much bigger investment. We talked about this in our intro than just paper, ink, and clipboards from the days uh, when this did not exist. Uh, we know that rural hospitals struggle more than ever right now, especially rural hospitals with financial stability. Uh, they're always looking at ways that they can cut costs, always looking for ways that they can introduce uh, new measures to their hospital. But unfortunately, there's not ways to fund those uh, specific measures. Um, what makes these systems so expensive? And how do rural hospitals manage the cost? Because we have to do it, right, with what needs to be done, you know, with the requirements from the federal government uh, in electronic records and portability of records and et cetera. You know, so, Barry, I know it's a loaded question because you're kind of talking 
I'm not going to say against the industry, but uh, certainly you do a lot to negotiate contracts. Uh, you've seen wide ranges from implementations of hundreds of millions, you've told me, to even small hospitals that could be obligating $10 million to a system that, you know, for an operating budget of $70 million, $10 million is a lot. So hate to throw that load of question at you, but I'm going to. No worries. Uh, this is one I feel a lot and I'm, I'm very passionate about. And I think I've got some good advice for this one for anyone who's listening. But I'm also not going to be so arrogant that I think I, I have the, the answer for it. OK, but let's talk about, first of all, what makes any system you know expensive to implement or install. Uh, the components there, you've got hardware, software, training, you've got the the maintenance beyond that, and, and then you've got whatever you want to customize and do with it that the other person has, all that falls together and says, well, this is why your, co- your system costs more than this person's system. Now, as far as why vendors charge what they charge, we're getting into their profit margins. That's the part I can't answer for you. And quite honestly, mm-hmm. that's the part that I disagree with, you know, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, I'm a Reagan baby. I believe in less government, more capitalism, you know, the American sure. dream, all those kind of things. So it's, it's hard for me to say you shouldn't be making a profit where you can't, where I have a problem is opportune profits in other words, you have to do this. You don't have a choice, and I know that, so therefore I'm going to charge you three times what I normally would. Mm-hmm. We don't need any more of that. That's not helping us. It's lining the pockets of those that have already got silk linings, and and you know, we could, you know, I'm not going to go down that road, or it's going to be a completely different kind of podcast. So yeah. let me drift <laughs> over. Let me let me drift over to what I think are things that you can manage that cost with. So if if you plan appropriately. Okay, one of the things that drives the cost up for um, hospital information systems implementations or or even migrations or upgrades, it's the time in which you want it done, right? Mm -hmm. So if I start three years before I have to implement a new information system install and I start planning on it three years before, then I've got the proper amount of time to do my diligence. I've got the proper amount of time to negotiate my contracts and, and, and I give my vendor the proper mm-hmm. amount of time to plan for it and plan their resources, right? All of that should lead to a less expensive than it otherwise would be implementation of an EHR EMR. If if I wait until look, my vendor my my current vendor just told me it's going to sunset next year, you know, and I've got 18 months and then I start asking vendors, they have to bring on additional resources. They have to move things around. They're going to charge for that. It's a premium. It's just like buying a loaf of bread down at the gas station versus going to Costco, right? So that's going to drive your prices up. Uh, so I think proper planning, uh, getting some getting some good advice on that. So I'll, I'll do a shout out to my own profession. There are those of us who have been CIOs, CTOs, compliance officers, and I have been all three of those, as well as an auditor and a consultant that could help walk through this sort of thing and to make it less expensive for you. We can't change the price tag. We can negotiate heavily because mm-hmm. we've done a lot of that. But if you give me 12 months to do it, JJ knows this, I'll sit down and tell you, you're going to write a much bigger check than you have to. Okay. Mm. Uh, if you give us two years to do it, it's going to get three years. It's going to get smaller. Okay. So the cost, direct cost from the vendors, I, I can't speak a lot about that. I don't know why right. someone thinks they can charge a hundred million dollars 
okay? And I see it all the time for an electronic medical record. I will say this. Uh, if you look at, say, Epic and Cerner and Allscripts, CPSI, Meditech, there's there's probably the most common ones. You'll run across Athena if you want to throw that in there. Um, they all have different ways of implementing. Epic, a lot of people don't understand the whole Epic cost. The vast majority of an Epic implementation has to do with the detail in which they do the install with their consulting professionals. So a lot of your costs in, say, a $100 million Epic implementation, probably way more than half of it is going to be having those consultants live with you for two years installing your system. But they do a very good job installing it, and it has a very high success rate. Well, you can cut your cost by cutting that down and not using as many people or doing it a short amount of time that you may, you may pay for. It. And I'm not a devotee of any of them. I've worked and negotiated contract with just about every EMR every vendor, yeah. every one of them. Yeah. And, and if you went and called the vice president of sales for any of those, they'd, they'd probably all say the same thing. We're not particularly in love with Barry. Some of them may say, <laughs> some, some of them may even say, I don't really like Barry, but what they should all say is at least he's fair and he's honest about it. He's doing what he should for his client. And uh, I think that's the most you can do at the end of the day. It's not it's not my business what they charge for the profit. That's They have to sleep at night over that. Yeah, so. well, you know, speaking of that, Barry, uh, we had a call today in which you probably weren't going to be voted the number one, uh, you know, <laughs> HIS uh, guy in charge uh, helping us out because uh, you did hold uh, a particular company that we were negotiating with uh, accountable today. And it really it speaks to the next question I have. Um, healthcare providers, specifically hospitals, uh, have many different software applications and systems that we use, uh, you know, from LIS to, to HRIS, whatever it is. That's a lab system to human resources. And sometimes um, we see even more than one EMR. We have that here at Hillsdale. We have Epic and we have, you know, Evidence, CPSI, whatever they, whatever they are. So now um, do all these hospitals, you know, uh, how, how, do, how do we coordinate all of those systems to talk to each other? Because that comes with a cost too, right? It, it does. Uh, and, and this is where, again, I, I'm going to go on the record saying I think the federal government has has helped us in this sense with the 21st Century Cures Act. Uh, there's 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 I'll go back to 2010 and say where I don't think they helped us or they tried. I think their intent was there. It just didn't turn out the way. And, and it, it kind of led into where we're at today. So. When the Reinvestment and Recovery Act came out, there was $30 billion that was laid out there for healthcare institutions to have access to if they could prove or attest to the federal government that where they were using an electronic system in a meaningful way to treat patients. Okay, that was the intent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we all know it is meaningful use in the industry. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that money... You know, it was $30 billion, and what wound up, what we wound up doing was taking the current systems as they are and driving everybody towards that market. So it was like all of these hungry vendors waiting for sales, and here, here comes a stampede of hospitals and clinics dying to have a system so they can get it. They've got stimulus money coming in there. So there's this mass uptick and, and a lot of people made a lot of money in the industry, but it really didn't help us in terms of sharing information. Okay. So now we have these, these, these buckets and pockets of information. They got bigger, right? Mm-hmm. But they're still spirit. So mm-hmm. what you're talking about is buzzword today is interoperability. 
the ability to exchange in between the systems within the health within the hospital as well as uh, from hospital to hospital or system to system. Right. right. The old way we did it was something called an interface, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'll, I'll use my my Valentine's Day analogy for an interface, and, and I love this one. It's one of my favorite. JJ knows that I talk in analogies. Um, we've all given, you know, most of the men and, and, and even in women and, and, and others, we've handed boxes of chocolate as a Valentine's gift, right? Well, let's say if I'm allergic to nuts, you know, the old way of doing is, is there's nothing in there because when they first came out, there wasn't any diagrams. You just have to bite into it. If there's a oh, nut, yeah. you put it back, yeah. you bite yeah. into it. Oh, there's caramel. So I really only want the caramel ones, right? Right. So right. the way, the way interfaces work or did work in some cases still work is I'll send you this file. You have to look at every piece of it to determine mm. if in fact, that's what you want. Is that okay. Well, mm. at least we came along with something called, you know, HL seven or healthcare level seven standardization, which said, now we're going to tell you what's in all of these, right? We're going to label those. So now imagine if the candy industry said every box of chocolate ever sent has to have, everything numbered and you know exactly what's going to be in every number. So now I know every place where a candy with a nut is every place, candy with marshmallow, candy with caramel. So when you send me that box, I'll simply say dump out everything except slot number eight, nine, 12, 15. Yeah. And I get only what I want. That's an interface. I don't need the rest of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's how we share information between systems. It's very archaic still, even as fancy as we think it is, it's a very archaic way of doing it. When I say that the federal government has helped us, the federal government is pointing us towards something. It's it's called uh, a fast healthcare interoperability resources called FIRE, the FIRE technology. Imagine if I no longer have to wait for you to send me that box of candy, even though it's labeled and I know only where the caramel is. I only want the caramel. With this technology, I can simply reach out to the candy factory and get just the caramel when I want the caramel. I don't have to see anything else. It's a direct link. I don't have to wait for you to, to, to I don't have to wait for Valentine's Day for you to give me a box. If I want a caramel camp, I go straight to, well, in between your systems, this called application programming interface allows them to do that. And the standardization is much like it was in the past. We know where everything's at. It makes it a lot easier. But as JJ pointed out, all of that costs money. So it actually adds cost to it, but it should create some more efficiency. Uh, so hey, it's, it's, I hope that analogy helps. I've used that to help some people understand how interfaces work, but yeah. And it's, I have an incredible desire to have a Snickers bar right now. I, I know. know I was like, that. I could really, yeah. I do keep a jar of, uh, let's chocolate chips on okay. my desk a, so I can have chocolate. You know, but I there want. is a confession to this too, Barry, because even with the diagram, I still bite into the chocolate. So <laughs> anyway, you know, <laughs> you it, just happens. it just happens. Yeah. And I have an off topic question, um, that this whole thing made me think of, and you use the word archaic when you're talking about interfaces, something else that seems archaic are fax machines. And in healthcare, we love oh. our freaking oh fax machines. And pagers. Don't forget pagers. Why? I mean, and I under in, in marketing, healthcare marketing, we are behind the rest of the marketing industry by like maybe five years to a decade most of the time. But with, I mean, I'm like, why do we still use fax machines? Right. I make a joke about it at general orientation with our new employees. And sometimes it lands and sometimes it doesn't. And that tells me how old the, yeah. the room is. But I don't get it. Why do we still use fax machines? Or does any other industry use them? Uh, there are a few. Uh, industry that still use fax machines, uh, rental cars industry does, believe it or not, <laughs> they still have fax machines, wow. but most, in, most industries use those as, as a backup. It's right. part of their, it's part of their contingency planning. Hmm. 
<laughs> healthcare is one of the few industries that still use it as their mainstream. You know, we, we still have, we, we'll go into a hospital doing IT assessment and find out there's eight fax machines in the pharmacy and the pharmacy still faxes on a regular oh, basis back very, and forth. Okay? Oh, absolutely. So um, I, I think part of it is if it's not broke, don't fix it. That's part <laughs> of it. The other one, it's very cheap technology. And for some reason, there's a, a, a group of people who feel like that's more secure. They're that's wrong. what I was going to ask you. No, I'll, I'll just yeah. tell you, they're wrong. It's not more secure. Um, and it's certainly hard, hard to manage and regulate you know, the fax machines. Um, and, and it's really, it's not that difficult to mimic a number, you know, and, and yeah, do all kinds absolutely. of social engineering around it as well. But yeah. it is, it is comforting for some people. You see, I, I know there, uh, I was in a practice, uh, for personal reasons. And I noticed that the, the doctor there had a fax machine and I asked about his electronic medical record and he says, I don't have one. I said, Are you, you're kidding me. He said, nope. We do everything on paper. Now, and, and this wasn't like, you know, uh, an 80-year-old getting ready to retire. This was um, probably mid-40s, uh, very smart um, into, uh, man with a very flourishing practice around plastic surgery. Okay. And they have no electronic medical record, and they use faxing to send all their billing out and uh, or their CMS and things like that. So, hmm. yeah. Wow. It's all paper. Okay. So still pockets for, of that, but thank you for answering my burning question because yes. it's one of yeah. those things that I'm just like, I don't get it. Um, and next week we'll be talking about beepers. Yeah, that's and right. The week our, our pagers our, yes. and okay. walkie talkies. Yeah, okay. and... my, my theory on pagers is people have something to hide. <laughs> <laughs> people, people who still carry pagers, the, they they're up to something, right? Uh, they right. Up to something. Yeah, that's they that's suspicious <laughs> for sure. Truth in that. So we it, you've kind of alluded to this already, but we talk a lot on this podcast about um, you know bigger health systems swallowing up little rural hospitals. Um, but I I think of that analogy, and I think of a slide that you had for us at our strategic planning summit about five and a half minutes before COVID started in February of 2020. Yeah. Remember that? And you had this slide Absolutely. and I, I'll never forget it. It had all these fish on it of different sizes and it was showing which fish had swallowed the other fish because the EMR companies out there have all been kind of acquiring each other over the last however long. Um, and you you mentioned uh, Cerner and Oracle. Twenty eight billion dollars is what Cerner announced was the what they were gonna or what Oracle announced they were gonna pay to acquire Cerner back in December. But what happens when an EMR company gets acquired? How does it impact the hospitals currently using it? Um, but also, we talked about costs before, and for rural hospitals in particular, it's real easy for us to get priced out of the market. And then have an even even bigger disadvantage in our ability to provide the kind of care we want to provide in the way we want to provide it because of that lack of of technology. Um, so, how do all these acquisitions impact that? Does that make it more expensive, less expensive? It's case by case. Uh, I mean, specific to the Oracle, everybody's wondering, and I've got clients who call me who have Oracle and say, "Barry, you're real close to this kind of stuff. Is my Cerner bill going to go up?" because mm -hmm. of the Oracle acquisition. And I answer them honestly, I have no idea right. <laughs> if your bill's going to go up because of this. 
and, and even Oracle is – because you've got a $47 billion company that gobbled up a $5.5 billion oh company, right? And people don't – yeah, people don't realize with, with the Oracle acquisition, some of it makes sense. Some of it doesn't. Uh, what does make sense is Cerner and Oracle have been buddies for years and years and years. So if you if you're a large hospital system and and you implement Cerner, the the database you're going to be using is Oracle. So you're already paying Oracle license fees. So my my optimism tells me that if the company who owns the license to the database also now owns the EMR that uses the database, you would think that would come out as some kind of savings and make it cheaper for smaller hospitals to put in Cerner. And mm-hmm. there is a camp that believes that. There is a camp out there that says maybe one of the ways that Cerner is going to get into the medium-sized market, because it's a battle, and Epic keeps winning a lot of Cerner okay, um, uh, implementation or deals uh, for the larger systems. So if you're in the market and you're publicly traded and you have to continue to install, then you're looking at other markets. So maybe uh, the community works, which is the, the smaller uh, scaled down version, kind of a static version of Cerner that you can put in. It should be affordable at a smaller hospital, but it still can use the Oracle database, which makes it kind of expensive. Maybe they'll see some benefit from that, that specific group. Who knows? Mm. When Cerner bought PeopleSoft, now, we, everybody kind of knew what they were doing there. They bought PeopleSoft because they themselves have a product like that to compete with, and they want the client-based, and there are those of us who are seeing PeopleSoft just kind of die, right? It's just mm-hmm. kind of going away. The, two, the, the, the group that built PeopleSoft have now built Workday, and Workday is now a competitor to Cerner, I mean, sorry, to Oracle. Uh, so, it, and around and around it goes, Right. Um, I, I I don't know what's going to happen with uh, from a pricing standpoint uh, with Cerner now that Oracle's got them. What I do know is that there's a tremendous amount of healthcare data associated mm-hmm. to Cerner users, right? This or that's already on Oracle database, and and I do know that that Oracle is a data company, and they have their sights set on. Uh, artificial intelligence. They have their sights set on uh, voice recognition and going back to our workflow. So let's think positive for a second, and maybe that's what will happen. We were talking earlier on how does an EMR affect the workflow in a positive and efficient manner. Well, that that voice recognition piece, maybe that's something in the next few years that comes out of the Oracle acquisition that has an impact on that. We'll have to wait mm-hmm. and see. I was shocked like everybody else. I, I wouldn't, I, I would not have thought that, that somebody like Oracle would have gobbled up. Now, if I have, if I had a wish, I'm still waiting on Apple, you know, to come into the industry. I think that would be phenomenal. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Google's out there, but in the background, you know, so mm-hmm. if you look at Medi, if you look at Meditech, Meditech did a wonderful thing. Uh, I think it's great for their products uh, where they've contracted with Google. So now you can get Meditech in a cloud based. It's called Meditech Expanse, and you can get that in the cloud using the Google mm-hmm. Cloud. Um, even Cerner has has moving a lot of their storage, their EMR storage, over to AWS. Right, so they're working with Amazon. So there's a lot of big technology players in the background of healthcare. But but I think the Cerner acquisition for Oracle, that's their anchor to get in all in. So they just jumped in the deep end and said, this is our anchor. And it's going to be interesting to see what they do. I think it'll be fun mm-hmm. to watch. I'm optimistic, but I have no idea if it's going to be more expensive. 
So, mm-hmm. you know, Barry. Uh, so, so we've addressed the issue of hospitals that have to have uh, their EHR in place. Uh, in implementing their EMR systems, the cost associated with it, which typically is high, um, the physicians that are satisfied because they, you know, they have better functionality, um, quick work keys, etc. But the one thing we haven't talked about, which is what drives healthcare in general, is its impact on patients. And so, you know, with all of this technology and all of this cost that hospitals are incurring beyond just the ease of a physician to get on and see, you know, what is the value added to our patients? Because that's what we do and, and why we do it. So, you know, optimizing that workflow, um, what what is the patient outcome for something like this? I think it depends on the, you know, it depends on the EMR you're using. Uh, each of them have their specialities and their niches. Some do some things better than others. Um, I think overall, uh, patients should in the next few years have better access to their own information. And and the impact of that, I think, is generational. My opinion is it's generational. Uh, guys like me, what I want from healthcare, healthcare that works, <laughs> okay? something that makes me feel better, you know, on a regular basis that I can afford that my insurance company is okay with. If you look at, say, my daughter or my son, you know, in their uh, mid and late twenties, they want healthcare that's convenient. They want healthcare mm-hmm. that they can get from their phone. They're they're completely okay with with picking up an iPhone while you know while they're walking and talking to a physician and then getting some medication picked up at the pharmacy by the time they get there. Yeah, for them for them that's what's most important because you know uh, they don't have a lot of stuff breaking, right? They're still a sports car. They're they're not the old sedan that has to have the oil changed every six months. So, um, so I think it's generational. My wish is if if healthcare, and I've said this for years, I said this twenty years ago, if we can get healthcare to where travel and leisure is, then then I think you're going to see some significant changes in in how we price it, how we how we use it, how we how we interact with it, but at the same time, I think you're going to see some better healthcare. Because again, what does what does really good healthcare? What is it all about? It's the right person at the right time with the right diagnosis and the right treatment. That's it. And and the more information you can give your physician to make a decision in a timely manner, that's where it's going to come from, right? That's where, that's how you're going to get part of that equation. The other half of it is how you pay for it, how's my insurance company. So everybody's going to kind of have to work together. But it's all about, you know, it's somewhat about the money. I think yeah. there are there are people that care about, you know, the the access to the information, how well it is to, to treat people. I, I I would love to do and I'd love to see you guys do a podcast on big data sometime. And I could probably get you. I could probably get you a nice person to talk to around that, but that would be big great because I want to talk yeah. about United and health and change yeah. healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. There you go, there you go. Big big data and how big data can can mm-hmm. do things that that nobody imagined to to do right. predictive medicine on things. Um, look at look at big data. Something as simple and it's there's a little bit of witch doctor in this. I, I tell my wife that, but we did the twenty three me twenty three and me right. Mm-hmm. We we did that whole thing and and some of it was interesting, but. But it wasn't so much whether it was spot on and accurate right now. It's that we're actually using this data to try to do some of these things. And it's just data, right? It's just data. So uh, that's exciting. You know, Barry, it's always an enjoyable time to be with you. 
Hard to believe that our time has come to a close. We could talk to you for hours. I have, in fact. Uh, We've we've, uh, broke a lot of bread together. Uh, We've shared a lot of stories together, but you're a phenomenal leader. Uh, And for our listeners today, if you're a CEO in a hospital, it doesn't matter what size, and you're looking for some services and you're looking for an advocate, uh, I encourage Barry Mathis, PYA. Uh, His contact information will be uh, offered to you at the end of our podcast uh, in somewhere located in... In In the show notes, notes. I think is what you mean to say. Show notes, right. In the show notes, there we go. (laughs) We'll put them in the show notes. We'll put them in the show notes. And Barry, again, it's been a pleasure to meet with you and uh, virtually and to spend this time. You're in the sunny uh, area of Tennessee. We're in the cold uh, here in Michigan with the ice and snow and rain and sleet all in one day and sunshine of 46 degrees. Hard to believe. Yeah. Very good. We um, Before we close, yes. uh, and we do this on every episode as well, um, we, it's a, just a fun segment, and um, it's, it's really getting to know you a little bit more about your experiences in rural, uh, rural health or even in rural America where you've been. Uh, so we want to know, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? Uh, one of my most unique experiences to, to, all right. So this is where the editors are going to have to edit the pause out. So it sounds like I answered this immediately. Um, so, well, I'll give you one for, you know, I'll give you one for a hospital and, and it's the most unique. And, and again, this was during my audit years. So I was a, a information systems auditor and, and consultant. And uh, I went into a hospital uh, I'll say it's in Indiana, the hospital. Probably, I won't mention the hospital's name, but we're talking rural. Um, <laughs> it, it took me, I was late getting to the hospital because I was behind a tractor that took up the entire road. Mm-hmm. And there was nowhere for this, there was nowhere for this person to go. And he had this big yellow thing that stretched out. And I'm like, I'm just going to have to ride behind this guy at five miles an hour, you know? And it was, a, it was about a 30 minute ride before he finally had a place to turn off. And, and he kind of tipped his hat to me like, sorry about that, but this is what I do for a living. And finally made it to the hospital and did our normal IT assessment. And I was in the emergency room and, and I, we found some things that were common back then. You know, you, you go to the, the one computer in the back that's running the emergency room system and take to the top of the computer. It says doc password. one and then password <laughs> underneath is tape to the computer. Those were the days. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. oh, yeah. So during my interview process, which we were kind of old school, even today we, we, we put a lot of effort in interviewing people and understanding processes than just having them fill out forms. But we did the same thing back then. And I'm talking to the emergency room registrar and it's just one lady, right? And when she goes home, then there's somebody else comes on for a second shift, but she's there most of the day. She's probably, you know, late sixties, early seventies. And she's, she's, she'll tell you she's worked at the hospital pretty much her whole life since she was like a teenager. And I'm asking my normal questions. And one of the security questions we always ask is how do you, how do you verify who somebody is? And she looked me square in the face and she says, what do you mean? I said, well, when somebody comes into the emergency room, you know, to, to get their, to get their record or or whatever, how do you verify who they are? She says, well, I know who they are. I said, what do you mean? She says, I know everybody in this town. I said, so you don't ask for ID. She said, why would I ask for ID? I know who it is. Oh my I said, so if, so if somebody walked in here and said, I need to pick up a medical record, uh, I'd say, I'll be right back. And I go get it and I give it to them. 
I said, they don't have to give you an ID. I said, she said, I just told you. I know everybody in this town. Oh, my. And I said, well, what if wow. I'm from out of town? She said, well, if you're from out of town, uh, I'd suppose I'd ask you if you knew somebody in town that <laughs> vouch for you. <laughs> so at no point did she say I was going to ask for an ID. Oh, my. So, but you would have thought that it was the strangest thing in the world when in our report we said you need to be asking for some form of ID for your release of information down the emergency room. And to this, you know, even after we were gone, she just didn't understand why, why anybody would ask for ID. You know, she was there That's when something. I was she would tell, I was there when they were born. Right. <laughs> you know, I know everybody's come through this hospital. So that's, oh, yeah. that's, that's one of my favorite rural hospital stories. And, and, and again, she wasn't, she was a very good person. And it just goes to show you that very good people trying to do very good things. If they're using a practice that's not standard, that's not, you know, not healthy, it could, it could, it could catch you, but they're, but they're not trying mm-hmm. to do it bad. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason that, that we, when we do our assessments, we never go at it like we're some kind of police officer. Because sure. it's a lot of good people trying to do good things and break down barriers and, and try to get information to physicians and patients as quick as they can. It's just occasionally the way they do it is not the safest way to do it. Barry, thanks for joining us again today. We appreciate your time and look forward to our next conversation uh, with Barry on a very exciting episode where we're going to talk about big health systems and some other neat things I think we have planned for you, Barry. But uh, once again, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate you. Thanks, JJ. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com. That's supposed to sound like chestnuts. <laughs> Testing on an open mic. Rachel screaming in the stand.